<laughs> Thank you. All of the uh, talk about finding your mate at, uh, you know, working at CIY or camp or here at college, all I got to say is, you guys are slow learners, all right? I have my high school sweetheart here today, all right? And I married her. She became my wife the year we graduated. And in a week and a half, we're going to celebrate 46 years. That's how you do it, guys. All right. That's how you do it. Hey, I want to uh, thank the chapel committee for giving me this opportunity to uh, share with you guys this morning. I'm excited about Daniel, looking at Daniel chapter 9 with you. Well, here we are. One week after the election, and we have a new president-elect. Now, what you have to know is, a week ago last Friday, Matt Stafford emailed me and he said, Zeus, I've lost my voice and I'm supposed to preach next Tuesday. Do you think we could swap? And I went, uh, I thought I had a week to write a sermon, not a day, you know, but yeah, you got to help out a brother. All right. So I spent all Saturday writing this sermon. So when I wrote this sermon, I had absolutely no idea how the election was going to turn out. All right. So that's what you need to know. I mean, the polls would kind of go back and forth, depending upon who you were listening to. Clinton's ahead. Trump's ahead. It's dead even. And then dirt on Trump shows up from years ago over comments he made that were absolutely scandalous and indefensible. He has women who have accused him of sexual harassment and rape. On the other hand, the FBI had reopened the investigation into the Clinton emails. There were questions about financial impropriety with the Clinton Foundation, not to mention Benghazi and a number of suspicious deaths associated with people with the Clintons. So really, as I followed this year's election... I felt like this meme summarized my feelings about the two candidates. (laughs) Stick a knife in the top socket, stick it in the bottom socket, either one is going to hurt. A lot. And I was thinking about the character... Or more accurately, I should say, the lack of character in both of the two candidates. And I said to myself, I wouldn't hold up either of these people to my grandchildren as someone to emulate. I could not say in good conscience, look at this man, look at this woman, and pattern your life after him or her. I really couldn't do that. I remember the day, I'm old enough, when I can remember when teachers, parents, 
People would hold up the President of the United States as a model of character and servanthood for all young people to aspire to. In summarizing uh, George Washington's life, biographer said, the great thing stamped upon this man is character. And by character, Freeman meant integrity, self-discipline, courage, absolute honesty, resolve and decision, but also forbearance, decency, and respect for others. Biographer wrote that Lincoln was distinguished by his great rejections of cruelty, alcohol, gambling, and racial prejudice, as well as his great appropriations for reading, ambition, humor, honor, and reason. And what was absolutely extraordinary about Lincoln was how he was able to embrace the political life without compromising his morals. And what he did instead as a lifelong politician was to realize that role's fullest moral possibilities. Wow. Compare Washington and Lincoln to what we have today. It ought to break your heart. It ought to cause you to beat your chest and to cry out. How in the world did we get to this place? How did we get here? How did we get here? That brings me to Daniel chapter 9. Because I think that Daniel was asking the same question of Israel. See, Jerusalem's temple had been sacked, destroyed. Walls around the city had torn down. All the uh, nation's leaders were taken away into Babylonian captivity. And it had been that way for almost 70 years. And Daniel's wondering, how did we get here? How did we get here? So what he does is he goes to the word. Now, a little background, all right, on the Daniel chapter 9, 1 and 2. It's the first year for the rule of Darius the Mede. Belshazzar, Babylonians are gone. It's a time of transition. And Daniel's engaged in Bible study. He's looking for an answer to this perennial cry of the people of Israel as they are in exile. And their cry is, how long, O Lord? How long are we going to have to suffer? And so he's reading uh, one of the scrolls of Jeremiah uh, to find the answer, which he did. An interesting uh, point that John Calvin makes uh, is that even though Daniel himself was an interpreter of dreams and uh, God had actually sent uh, angelic messengers to explain the different dreams and visions that he has had before. He is not so puffed up with pride or confidence as to despise the teaching delivered through other prophets.
prophets. And I think there's a, a good lesson for us there. He was seeking to have his mind informed and his heart dominated by whatever God had said about their current situation. So what passage in Jeremiah did Daniel read? Well, very easily it could have been Jeremiah 25, uh, verses 11 and 12, which read, The whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and make it desolate forever. But I like to think it was probably Jeremiah 29. Verses 10 through 12. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Now, whichever passage he was reading, Jeremiah believed the promise of God and his response was to pray. And so we have this prayer Because of the promise that he believed in from the prophet Jeremiah. And when Daniel prays, you understand, this is a time of extreme discouragement for the people of God. I mean, for 70 years, almost 70 years, they've been in Babylonian captivity. They couldn't go home. They couldn't visit the places of their youth. No high school class reunions. They couldn't offer the proper sacrifice in the temple because it would have been looted and destroyed. Home was only a distant memory. To the people of God, they were living out their worst nightmare. Slaves, captives, once again. It seemed like a time... Hope had vanished. And there was absolutely nothing that could be done. So Daniel studies. He remembers. And he prays. Now I think it's really fascinating that Daniel records his prayer. So that we actually have it to study today. Daniel chapter 9. I mean, why would you do that? I don't record my prayers. I mean, maybe some of you do in your journal. I mean, that might be a great thing to do, but I don't do that. Why did Daniel do that? I think the answer's twofold. Because he knew, because he believed the promise of God, the restoration was going to take place. They were going to be able to go back after the 70 years, back to their homeland, back to the promised land. And that would be as a fulfillment of prophecy. But not just that. They were going to be able to return also because of God's answer to the cries of his people. It was to testify that God does hear, honor, 
and answer prayer. Daniel is a man of prayer. He wanted God's people to see this this intimate connection between their praying and the subsequent events of history. And then to find comfort and trust in prayer to God. And when you read through Daniel chapter 9, you will notice that when Daniel begins to pray, he doesn't do what you would have expected him to do. I mean, he finds this promise after 70 years, and he knows chronologically the 70 years are almost up. I mean, it's time for the return. And you'd have thought that's what he would have been praying about right away. But it's not. It's not like, you know, hey, God, time's almost up. You promised, and you have to keep your promise because you're God. (laughs) So come on, God, it's time. Let's get jiggy with it. All right, come on, let's go. No, that's, that's not what he does. In fact, he only mentions the return in the very last line of his prayer. But his emphasis instead is on the sin of the people. Making an earnest confession of it before God. And while Daniel wasn't personally part of that rebellious majority that, that brought the wrath of God upon the nation... He still identified himself with his people. Let's look at this prayer. Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. And done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Notice Daniel does not blame God for their current situation. See, he's not being whiny, all right, and saying, Oh, God, you forgot us. That's why we're suffering. I need a safe place. Your anger, God, is just too much. I can't accept it. You left us here to suffer. No. That's not what Daniel did. He draws a direct connection between the sin of the people and their current suffering. Because between the law of Moses and the prophets, God's people had no excuse. They knew what the consequences of their actions would be because the law of Moses made it very clear. You cannot read through Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9 without seeing the thumbprint of Deuteronomy all through it. And especially Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the first 14 verses are all about God's blessings upon his people for faithfulness and for obedience. 
And it's things like the fruit of your womb will be blessed, your crops, your livestock, your kneading trough, your enemies will be defeated before you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. I mean, it's like a veritable blessing palooza. All right. It was awesome. But in that same chapter, verses 15 through 68, 53 verses are very clear about the curses that God would bring down upon his people for disobedience. God says, you'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the country. The Lord will plague you with disease and famine, tumors and festering sores. And because of the suffering that the enemy will afflict on you during the siege, you will even eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. That's bad. That's gross. That's punishment. And that is exactly where Israel found themselves. In captivity. Living out the fulfillment of God's promise to punish disobedience. Now at this point, Israel may have been given to despair. You might despair. But hope. God is always a God of hope and redemption. And in just two chapters over, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, here God promises the hope of redemption and restoration even after disobedience. When all these blessings and curses I've set before you come upon you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and you obey him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. And he'll have compassion on you. And he'll gather you from all the nations where he scattered you. And the Lord will again delight in you. And he'll make you prosperous just as he delighted In your fathers. See this was a promise. That Jews needed to be reminded of. There was still hope. To be found in a forgiving. And a merciful God. No matter what they had done. And no matter how hopeless. And discouraging. Their current circumstances were. Church, I think it's time for us to follow the example of Daniel. Confess the sins of our nation. And to take responsibility for the situation that we find ourselves in. I mean, really, seriously, think how far away from God we have come as a nation. Let me just give you a little brief chronology here. 1973, Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court decision. Abortions legalized. And since that time, 58 million babies' lives have been snuffed out in their mother's womb. Ten commandments have been removed 
from our courthouses, prayer removed from our school classrooms, the singing of traditional Christmas carols and songs. They're prohibited now in most uh, public school uh, winter concerts. It all has to be Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, and God forbid Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Retail clerks, most of our big box stores, have been instructed to say the insipid happy holidays. And they're prohibited from saying Merry Christmas because that might offend somebody. In 2015, Supreme Court under the Obama administration ruled states cannot ban same-sex marriage, thereby requiring all states to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples making gay marriage legal in the United States. So in light of this, I mean, I just have to ask, how are we any different than ancient Israel in rejecting the laws and the standards of a holy and righteous God. Should we not be punished as Israel? Now I know there's a difference. We're not Israel. We're not God's people. I I get that. But, But righteousness and God's standards are universal. Maybe that's why our election came down to the two candidates that we had. It's what we deserved. What we deserved. Don't you think it's time for us then to follow Daniel's example and to get down on our knees and to pray? I so appreciated Matt Stafford leading us in prayer last week as part of our chapel service. People, we need to do that more often. But we need to trust the promise of God. Daniel's prayer, it was an expression of trust in a God who keeps his word. And I'm sure you understand that promises or or covenants or treaties are only as good as the person or the government making them. In the history of the United States, the U.S. government made 500 treaties with Native Americans. And they broke every single one of them. People, that is to our shame. That calls for confession, repentance. Promise is only as good as the person making it. I mean, anybody can promise anything. But the question is, do they have the power or do they have the authority to fulfill it? I mean, I can stand here and I can promise every student who asks, I'll deposit $50,000 in your Ozark account. (laughs) Yeah, I can promise you that. (laughs) I doubt any of you are going to take me up on it. (laughs) You know I work here at Ozark and they don't exactly pay like Bill Gates. (laughs) They pay well, don't misunderstand me, but I don't have the money like Bill Gates. I wish I could be that generous. But, if I said to you, whoever asks, I'll let you drive a classic Mustang. 
I could do that. That's a little different. You know I have the power to make that happen. Daniel has complete trust in God. And God's word to fulfill whatever promise he has made. Daniel's already seen the fulfillment of the divine threats for judgment. And now he's praying that God's just going to keep his promise for deliverance and restoration. Now you might think that America right now is in a similar place of hopelessness. And it just couldn't get any worse. And you're despairing for the future of our nation. Well, if you're feeling that way, if you think this is the worst it's ever been and it's just lost, it's just one day from the apocalypse. I say to you as gently as I can, buck up! You think this is the only time America has been in turmoil and crisis? Let me share with you the situation of America in the 1790s. Okay, did you catch that? The 1790s as described by the great uh, Christian historian J. Edwin Orr. And he says drunkenness was epidemic. The streets of our cities weren't judged to be safe after dark. What about the churches? The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. A typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd, in 16 years hadn't baptized one convert. The Lutherans were so languishing, they actually were discussing uniting with the Episcopalians, who were even worse off than they were. The Episcopal Bishop of New York, he just quit functioning. He hadn't confirmed anybody in so long, he just decided he must be out of work. So he walked off the job and found a different vocation. Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, and he says, the church is too far gone to ever be redeemed. Voltaire, atheistic philosopher, the author Thomas Paine declared, quote, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years, unquote. And the spiritual state of America's universities at that time concurred with such gloomy predictions. Little hope for a future of faith in the land. A poll was taken at Harvard and they discovered not one believer in the entire student body. So they took a similar poll at Princeton, a much more evangelical institution, and they discovered two believers in the entire student body. Only five that didn't belong to the filthy speech movement of the day. Students rioted. They held a mock communion at Williams College. They put on anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. They burned down Nassau Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of a local Presbyterian church in New Jersey. And they burned it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on our campuses in the 1790s, they actually met in secret like a communist cell. And they kept their minutes in code so that no one would know. That surprise you? You may be wondering, how did the country recover from that? I'm glad you asked. 
I'm going to tell you. (laughs) By following the example of Daniel. Through prayer, fasting, and repentance. Organized prayer movements began. People began praying desperately for revival. And in the summer of 1800, the great Kentucky revival took place. 11,000 people came to a communion service. And out of this came what is we refer to now as the second great awakening. And out of that comes the modern missionary movement, the abolition of slavery, Bible societies, Sunday schools, hospitals, orphanages, and many other social benefits. Utter hopelessness was turned to renewal and restoration. Prayer, repentance, and trusting the promises of God saved our nation then. And I believe... It could happen again. You believe that, church? Can it happen for this generation? I believe it can. Because I know you guys. Millennials take a lot of heat in the the press, in the media. But at least those of you here, I know your hearts. I know your dedication. I believe in you. I believe in you that you can turn the world around because God's promises still stand. Ian Bounds wrote these words about prayer. He says, we're constantly on a stretch, if not a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church. This trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or to sink the man into the plan or the organization. God's plan is to make much more of the man, far more of him than anything else. Men and women are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men and women. And so what the church needs today, it's not more technology or better technology or new organizations or more and novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Spirit can use. Men of prayer, men and women who are mighty in prayer, because the Holy Spirit doesn't flow through methods. The Holy Spirit flows through people. Holy Spirit doesn't anoint technology. Holy Spirit anoints men and women of prayer. Now there's one more promise found in Daniel chapter 9 needs to be looked at. Because of Daniel's prayer, God actually sent the angel Gabriel to give God's ultimate answer to the needs of the nation of Israel. And God's saying, all right, you did 70 years of captivity to make up for the lost, you know, uh, 70 years, sabbatical years that you didn't keep. Okay, your your captivity time's made up for that. You're going to go back home. You're going to rebuild. You're going to, you know, back to the homeland. But that's not all. That's just for you. But I'm going to do something so marvelous. It's going to be a blessing to Israel, but not just Israel. It's going to be a blessing to the entire world. And the answer is found in the 70 weeks. 
Now, I am not even going to try to interpret the eschatology or the timetable or the 70 weeks in this sermon, all right? Uh, the OT uh, scholar, uh, Kyle and Delich, their commentary, they have 66 pages of commentary just trying to explain these four verses about the 70 weeks. So I'm not even going to try. All right, you go talk to Dr. Pachauer afterwards. He'll explain it to you in five minutes. I'm sure you can do that. All right. Sorry, Larry. <laughs> but whatever, whatever explanation you take, there's something they're all in agreement on. And they all agree that in this passage about the 70 weeks, the heptads, the ultimate answer for Israel and the whole world is the Messiah. There's six things that are going to take place as a result of the Messiah's ministry. There's three eradications of the negative, and then there's three positives. Transgression's going to be finished. Sins are going to be brought to an end. Reconciliation is going to be made for iniquity. Everlasting righteousness is going to be established. Vision and prophecy will be sealed. Now, let me explain that. That's sometimes misunderstood as a sealing away. But sealing in its ancient context is better understood as a mark of approval and authentication of the prophetic word. And then last of all, the most holy is going to be anointed. I see in these statements, these six things, a prophecy of the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He came to die for our sins that through him we might die to sin and be raised to a life of righteousness. And then we've been invited to participate in his kingdom. And that promise is still valid for us today. People, the Messiah has come. Sin's been defeated. God has reconciled us to himself. No matter how horrible our past, God says, oh, there is hope. The everlasting kingdom's been established. And we get to participate in that kingdom. Brothers and sisters, that is a promise I want to cling to. That's a promise I need to remember. And so I'm going to close with this. No matter who is president or who isn't, God is still sovereign. He still reigns from above and Jesus is still coming again. And in the words of Jesus, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's a promise you can live your life on. Thank you.